Welcome to the Rise and Fire live stream. My name is PD, and I'm so honored to be with you here today. Today is a special day. We're going to do the Q&As, and we're going to talk about some controversial yet important topics. I really hope for this to be a balanced bunch of topics. We're going to talk about everything from casting out demons to speaking in tongues to I got some questions on law versus grace, the the works versus faith and all of that, conflict resolution, about grieving for loved ones who've passed away, and also about keeping the Sabbath. And there's even more if we get to them. We'll see what we get to. I'm excited to have you here, and I'll see you in the show. guys we're gonna go right into it one of the first questions that i'm going to talk about here tonight is regarding casting out demons before i touch on this one i want to just let you know that we're doing this every thursday at 7 p.m eastern time and i want to say a big thank you to all our partners who make this possible you can find out more how to become a partner to help us keep this going by going to riseonfire.com now let's get back to causing our demons right so this question is such a good one it's is it possible to cause out demons from someone without actually being present with them okay so my initial thoughts are well of course because i've seen it and then there's also a few biblical things that i want us to just think about as well that happened First, I want to talk about what happened in Scripture. You know, we see biblically Yeshua, Jesus, right? When he's busy casting out demons or dealing with demons in any way, what he does is you find him confronting demons very often. And, and what I mean is he, it's almost a daily occurrence that he is actually getting face-to-face with someone who has a demon and he casts the demons out. And then we have other, another part of his ministry, his supernatural ministry, that is healing the sick. And, and with healing the sick, you'll see him oftentimes healing someone who's right in front of them. But then there's also times when he heals someone from a distance, from afar. Uh, for example, you can think about the centurion, right, who came and said, my servant is sick. And as Yeshua's on the way there, he actually sends someone else and says, who says, oh, you don't actually even have to come into my house. I'm not worthy of you. You just say the word and, and, and they'll be healed. And Yeshua said in Luke 7, 9, when he heard this, he marveled and turning to the crowd that followed, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And long story short, when they get, got back to that house where that sick servant was, they were healed. All right, so we see now this idea is there that miracles can happen, of course, from across distance and time and space is not a limit. But when we look at casting out demons specifically, though, it's that it's almost as of though that confrontation is always there in Yeshua's ministry. We don't see the same thing necessarily happening with demons, but 
I think the reason this is not like a, I'm not saying that demons can't be cast out uh, remotely because they can. I mean, I have multitudes of times had people on things like video calls and and in the at the end of this counseling session, there is a demon manifesting and 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 a demon is being cast out over a video call. There's pe- um, a few people in my team as well here at Rise on Far. We have encountered that various times, so we know that that is not an issue. But I do think that um, deliverance is usually going to look like some sort form of a confrontation with an entity and. When we think look, think about prayer and um, uh, this kind of non not not being in person with someone, prayer praying for someone who is in bondage starts the process and aids the process of deliverance. But for some people, I have found that actual confrontation of that demon is necessary for that demon to leave. All right, and other times it's not. Okay, but. I, I'm just saying all of this because I, I want everyone who thinks about casting out demons to really consider the fact that sometimes it's necessary to get dirty and deep in this. And what I mean is get in the trenches of actually facing off the demon and casting it out instead of simply, I don't want us to be like, no, I'm going to pray from distance because I'm scared, right? But instead, no, we confront this because Yeshua has given us the authority to do so. Right. I mean, I hope that answers that question uh, for you guys. Uh, the second one is from Charles, and he has a good question. Well, a testimony he shared with me, and also kind of a question baked in there about speaking in tongues. Now, this, when I read this, I was amazed at this testimony, and I want to read it to you guys. He's, he's from Henderson, North Carolina, and he says, Hendersonville, North Carolina, and he says, Before I knew anything about Jesus and becoming a Christian, someone told me about speaking in tongues. All right. Later, when I was alone, I prayed to God, God, if you're real, let me speak in tongues. Immediately, I spoke in a language I didn't know. It lasted a short time and then stopped. I still didn't know anything about believing in Jesus. A week later, someone presented the gospel to me and I believed. Suddenly, I saw all my sins and repented of them, but I did not speak in tongues again. I've been told that I had to have been already been a believer or I could not have spoken in tongues. I've always thought that it was assigned to me as an unbeliever, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 22. What do you say? All right. So I, I, I love this story, right? Like, You know, I always think about the fruit of someone's testimony when they're telling me this. You know, who am I to come to this person, to Charles, and say, you know, Charles, this this was an an illegitimate encounter with the living God. If it was such a, a thing that happened to him that it changed his life, he repented, he got baptized, he, like all of this happened, right? So, so obviously something supernatural happened to Charles here. Now, the question is where, how do we, if this is really from God, right? We're going to find this in the Bible. We're going to find evidence of what he's talking about in the scriptures. And we do, right? I I think that um, the thing is that some people will say, you know, I I can imagine people coming with this argument that 
If you're not a believer, you cannot speak in tongues because speaking in tongues is something that believers do, right? And it's true that speaking in tongues is something that believers do. But what does it mean to be a believer? I think that's the question here. Uh, for most people, that means to believe in the Lord Jesus and to be saved. Okay, well, that's fair. But if that's the case, if that's required to be able to speak in tongues, then none of the people who spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2 had a legitimate encounter. Because I want to remind you that in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, right, we have people who are in that room who believe, obviously they believe in God. They believe in Yahweh. They're there at a, the Feast of Shavuot to celebrate Him. However, when they come up and they start speaking in tongues and all of this happen, Peter gets up and he speaks to everyone. He gives them a speech and he says, Listen, guys, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has raised from the dead and he preaches the gospel to them. And it's written that they were pierced to the heart. They repented and 3,000 that day got baptized. In other words, there were people in this crowd who were hearing the speaking in tongues and, and hearing it in their language. We had people speaking in tongues and all of this was happening. And there were people in the midst of this who were not baptized into the Lord Jesus, who were, who were not strictly believers the way that many would define what a believer is, but they were believers in the Father and God. Right, so my point is just here we see that the Holy Spirit was poured out on these people, but they were in unity in one mind, even though they did not have all the answers or the knowledge yet. Peter proclaimed the, the truth to them and they came on board. And this encounter of hearing this gift of tongues, hearing these languages was the very thing, the very thing that pointed them to repentance and to turn to God. Think about all of that. So this is why we read and, and this is what uh, um, Charles brought up. He said in 1 Corinthians, he said 1 Corinthians 14, 22, how it talks about how speaking tongues is a sign for the unbeliever. And that's exactly what it can be, right? When we look in Acts chapter 2, it was a sign to people in that room who were not believers that they need to become believers because of the miracle, the power of God that was manifesting in that place. All right. So um, I hope that this makes sense to you guys. So, Charles, absolutely, I think that your encounter has good fruit, evidently, and it lines up with the word where we have people who have a hunger for God, which, which Charles, you said, you, you said that you pray to God. You said, God, if you are real, let me speak in tongues. Let me tell you something, Charles. By praying that, you already showed faith that there is a God because no one speaks to a God. They have zero faith in that he exists. You had a, a, a faith of a mustard seed, perhaps, but nonetheless, you had a, a, a faith. And that faith that you placed in him and father, he saw that and he was like, well, I'm going to show up in your life. And I'm going to show you how real I am because I love you. Right. And so the people in that in that uh, upper room, if you will, in Acts chapter two, perhaps had the faith of a mustard seed. We know they had some form of a faith. And the father decided to show up 
to help them increase their faith and grow. So, okay, so guys, I hope that this helps you out. Uh, I guess this is all about terminology. What do we really call an unbeliever? What is that defined as, right? That will really change the way that we look at this. All right, so we're going to go up to our next question here. Uh, this is from someone who wished to remain anonymous. Uh, question from t all the way from Texas. The difference between the gift of tongues and a and the personal prayer language. Okay, so this is another question regarding the, the gift of tongues. And it's asked, would you please clarify the difference between the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10, and Yahweh's personal prayer language, praying in tongues to the believer in 1 Corinthians 14, 2 to 4, which edifies, helps our infirmities, builds oneself up, etc. We have found that most believers do not understand praying in tongues versus speaking in tongues. Tongues that need to be interpreted or tongues used to speak to someone that speaks in a foreign language who is present in the assembly. Okay, so very good. Uh, I think this is important. You know, I think if we understand the gift of speaking in tongues accurately by reading how everything Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, we will start realizing that he is speaking about various roles for the gift of tongues. Right. And this is so important for us to to get, because if we think speaking in tongues is a sing as a singular role, like we many people believe it's Acts chapter two, they spoke in foreign languages and others heard it and understood. Amen to that. Praise God. Just like we just discussed regarding Charles's question. But Paul goes on and he says things about the gift of tongues that it, aren't in line with simply that role of the gift to speak in a foreign language for a son for unbelievers. Paul goes on and says some other things like, for example, the one who speaks in the tongue speaks not to men, but to God alone. It says, he says no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. Okay, so that does not make sense with the idea that it's only for foreign languages because here it says he speaks not to men at all, but only to God. No man understands. So that doesn't make sense, right? There's seemingly a contradiction or the fact that he talks in, in verse four of how the one who speaks in the tongue um, builds up himself, right? So I'm going to open up 1 Corinthians 14 for us here. Um, so we can just have a look at some of these uh, to, to think about what what is the difference here that we need to discover. So. What we see is when we look at verse two, okay, that's what I just said. He speaks not to men, but to God. Okay. We see um, he, it says he builds up himself, right? He goes on and says in verse 15, if we go a little further, he says, what am I to do? I'll pray of my spirit. I'll pray of my mind. I'll sing praise of my spirit. I'll sing praise of my mind. And he goes on and says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. So, we have these interesting observations Paul is making that his when he prays in tongues, he's not speaking to men, but to God alone. He's speaking to build up himself spiritually. And he makes a distinction between praying in his spirit and praying is with his mind. So we know that when he speaks in tongues, it's not to do with his mind. It's to do with building up his speaking with his spirit, building up in his, in his spirit. So we see that you can pray in 
tongues, pray in the Spirit, and you can pray with your mind like we traditionally pray. So there's this difference there that we start seeing. And then, of course, like we, we've discussed earlier, you know, we have this where tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, right? As when, it's, when tongues become a sign for unbelievers, it's when someone like Charles, who was basically uh, an unbeliever in the strict sense of the word, and he encountered God through this gift. Or someone hears someone else speak in their own native language and they're like, how can you speak my language? You're a Galilean, like it was in Acts chapter 2. All right. And then so we have tongues as speaking in a foreign language for signs to unbelievers. We have the gift of tongues as a personal prayer language that builds up the individual where he speaks not to men, but to God. And then we have the gift of tongues to be interpreted to. In other words, in a church setting, you have someone speak in tongues. There's not there's and there's someone who stands up and says, I can't speak that foreign language because this manifestation is not about a foreign language. Instead, God has given me the gift of interpretation, which is another spiritual gift to interpret this tongue supernaturally. And they will give a interpret an interpretation of this tongue to the church, which is typically a prophetic word that builds up the church. See, now it's not about building up the individual. It's not about speaking not to men, but to God alone. Now it's about speaking to men. It's about speaking to the assembly. It's even about giving a word like a prophecy where others can be built up by. And this is why Paul spends all this time in 1 Corinthians 14 talking about how to orderly do this gift. That if there is no interpreter, then just speak to yourself and God in your personal prayer language. Pray in tongues, yes, but don't speak loudly when there's no interpreter because no one can then understand what you're saying. And that's just meant for you and the Father. See, he's trying to manage and, and, and pr bring order to how we should approach each of these different manifestations or roles of the gift of tongues. All right, guys, so I hope that that makes makes sense. If you're really interested in this topic more, please go into my speaking in tongues series. There's a part one and a part two and another Q&A devoted to just speaking in tongues in that series where I go verse by verse through all of this and discuss every angle possible regarding speaking in tongues. And it should answer any doubts you, can t you still may still have about this. Because today, I know this is a complicated topic and we're just scratching the surface. All right. Uh, another question from the same person. Can praying in the spirit be understood by the believer? Some believe that when one prays in their native language, it can be praying in the spirit. But Paul said that when one prays in this or sings in the spirit, one does not understand what he says for the mind's unfruitful. Would you please address it? OK, so like we've discussed earlier, um, let me see where that was. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. So he said, you know, what am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind also. I sing praise of my spirit, I sing my mind also. So yes, like we, we've kind of discussed this, but there is a clear distinction he's drawing here. That praying in the spirit is not praying with your mind. It's praying in a tongue. 
where he says that's where his spirit prays and his mind is unfruitful. But when we pray in English or whatever your native language is, your mind is very fruitful. You, you're speaking a language you understand. You're using your mind to lift up your, your praises uh, your, to God. So uh, when, we, when we look at it, we see, he says, my pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is unfruitful. So we see that, that it, that's there. Sorry, guys, I just noticed I didn't bring up the scripture for you. So there it is. I pray in the tongue. That's when the spirit prays. So that's why he makes that distinction there, right? So, uh, yes, there's a distinction. And this, this makes a lot of sense when you understand speaking in tongues because when you speak in tongues, your mind is bypassed. Your mind is basically like out of the picture. So the spirit is moving the mouth, speaking through the person and speaking words that the mind cannot speak. In other words, the thing, when you do not have words to say, you do not know what to pray, you're, you're praying from your soul. The spirit makes intercession for you in a way that your mind, where your mind cannot go. Uh, in fact, I have even seen in deliverance, right? When, when we are speaking, casting on demons, right? And we, we're not sure what the bondage is. We're not sure what the, the blockage is. Why is this demon, what, what, um, what foothold does it have in this person's life that it doesn't want to leave, right? And then speaking in tongues has sometimes opened up that revelation and it has caught, caught, caused that demon to leave. Or I have seen speaking in tongues be something that I have done before and then I've received a vision or I've received a word, right? So there's this, there's this role that it can play in the life of a believer in a personal way as well as in a public way. And when we read what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, we can understand how we should balance those things. All right, cool. So uh, I'm going to go into our next question here. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this. Um, thank you so much for sticking it through with us and being here with us. I really hope this blesses you. Um, so the next one is from, from Brittany. And this is a question regarding law and grace. And she asks this. I've watched your videos on law and grace, but something is still very hard for me to understand or accept. How do we obey the law while also accepting that we are saved by grace? It feels so contradicting and is hard for me to make sense of. Yeah, all right. So this is, guys, I think we've all, we can all say that this is something we have had to th th struggle through, think through, consider, uh, you know, but let me break this down for you. When you are in your parents' house, right? You're a teenager. You're, you're under your parents' house rules. And your parents have rules in the house of you're not allowed to stay up past this time. Uh, you can't go out past that time. You should honor your siblings and, and, and your parents. You should be, okay, you know, whatever. Do your chores, okay? We have house rules in our parents' home. Now, if you came to your parents and you said, hey, mom, dad, I don't like these rules because I feel like it's coming in between our relationship because I feel like that I need to do them to gain your approval, to be, to be loved by you. Right? What would your parents say? They would say, well, well child, you're not doing, we're not asking you to do these things what the things that we say, because that's how 
you get us to love you. We love you. You cannot change that. You can never take that away. You can never do anything to take that away. And, and, and we will not ever put you out of the house by you making a mistake here or there, breaking a house rule here or there. We will have mercy and grace. We may talk to you about it. We may convict you about it. But we will, we will have mercy because we love you. Right? So in the same way, when our father comes to us, he says, hey, I love you. You have salvation because you are my son, my daughter. I died on the cross for you. But now that we are in this relationship, there are house rules that I want to lay out for you in my house. In my house, you will not murder. You will not gossip. You will not commit adultery. You will rest on the seventh day. You will honor your mother and your father. You will, and it goes on and on. Now, we wouldn't go to our father and say, well, God, I don't know about these, these rules because, you know, I, I feel like I don't know how to balance this with, with being safe because he's already said the reason that these rules are there are not to save you. In fact, he warns against it over and over that if you try to work yourself up to a standard of salvation yourself, you are doing away with the need for what I have done for you. So instead, we understand we are saved by grace through faith alone. But then because we love him and because we are in relationship with him, we stick to the rules that he has laid out for us. And we understand that the law is not there for us to keep it to get saved. It's there to point out out the errors that we have made in life so we can turn away from that, repent from that, turn to God and become more like Yeshua. That's the point. You see, you people argue and say, well, you know, I don't want to do that stuff. But I'll, I'll say, well, you can't look like Jesus if you don't do what he did. And Jesus obeyed his father's instructions. You want to say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but I don't like these laws. Jesus is like, that doesn't make any sense because he says, you want to be my disciple? One John, he says, 1 John 2 verse 6, whoever says he abides in me ought to walk in the same way that he walks. So if he did a certain thing, like keep his father's commandments, I do the same because I am saved. All right, Brittany. So I want you to think about it this way, that we are saved by grace. That doesn't change. But then our change of life, when we have a real encounter with God, we are our, our works change and we have evidence of our true faith that starts manifesting in our life. And this does not mean that we're perfect and we will make many mistakes. That's a guarantee, just like you will make mistakes in your own parents' house. But they have mercy and grace on you. And that's what the Father has. Even more, mercy and grace on you. He forgives you. But if you have rebellion and you say, well, God, I refuse to obey anything that you have laid out for me. God, I, I, I want to go my own way, do my own thing. You will be like the prodigal son who leaves his father's house, goes to dwell with the pigs, right? And then... You, out of that rebellion, voluntarily leaves his presence like Adam and Eve voluntarily, well, you know, by their own decisions, left his presence because of what? The breaking of the law that they did out of rebellion. Now, when Yeshua comes back, 
right? He is, he is setting up a kingdom that is going to be a kingdom that is lawful. And his people, he says, he's going to set up as rulers with who's going to rule alongside him. And so we need to understand what are the what is righteousness? What is holiness? How do we live? And that's how he lived. And that's what we do. So if you're if you're questioning, what am I talking about? Really, the bottom line is all I'm talking about is be is walking like Jesus. That's it. That's it. If you're confused, we look to Christ. He is the example. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has sent for us that he empowers us to actually be more like him. All right. Cool, guys. I hope that blesses you. Uh, Brittany, I hope that makes sense to you. If it doesn't, hey, write me in. I'd love to explain further. Okay. Will Warren uh, posted the next question regarding this topic. Thank you so much, Will, for your question as well. It's, it's also regarding salvation and uh, works and faith and all of that. Okay, he says that I said in a video, and he quotes me, in conclusion, obeying God's law is not our means of salvation. It's rather our willing and grateful response to our salvation already received. It is how we say thank you to God for that salvation. It's by showing to him that we want to walk like him. We want to walk like Jesus did. We want to walk in holiness. And when we walk, when we walk in holiness, that's what he delights in. Okay, that's what I said at some point in a video. And he says, so I have two questions. Do you agree with your previous statement above? And I would say, yes, I do. There's obviously a lot more context to that, but I agree with that. And then he said, if you answered yes to question one, what is your interpretation of James chapter two? Okay, so good question, right? So James chapter two, let me, let's read that. Uh, James two, and, and I'm going to assume that Will is talking about verse 14, where he talks about, James talks about faith and works, right? So, Okay, let's read this. It says, let's just read a few verses. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Okay. All right. So this is a brilliant question. And uh, this is something that a lot of people, I think, have wrestled with and do wrestle with, is how do we reconcile what James is saying regarding the importance of works and then this idea of being saved by faith alone? Is that not a contradictory idea? Right. But now what what we see is that James is writing to a people who who is struggling with this idea themselves, who may be lingering on the idea that Paul is meaning and, and all the other writers who talk about this is meaning that, oh, well, do, do works not matter or people who are hypocrites who who believe in Christ, but think, well, work, Jesus died for my sins. So, you know, what I do doesn't matter anymore. I can. He died for my, me to sin more, he, he, but he didn't, right? He didn't just die for you so you can go on the way you lived before. He died for you to change the way you live. And, and that license to sin is not there. So when you think about it now, just practically speaking, if 
Christ comes and dies for you and you're saved by believing in him alone. Amen. End of story. Yet you go and you live like the devil. You are trampling underfoot the son of God. You are basically saying, well, Christ, thank you. You died for me, but I'm going to do all the things that put you on the cross over and over and over and over again out of rebellion, not caring. And that's not a true believer. I would argue that that faith that has been shown or said to have been there is non-existent and is a false faith. And that's what James is really addressing is what is faith truly? True faith is when you have a changed life. You believe in Yeshua. That means you believe in what he said. You believe in what he's done. You believe in what he told you to do. And that true faith will naturally with the empowering of the Holy Spirit come and bring about a sanctification process. In other words, you start living differently. And if you're a Christian and you don't live different from the way you live before you were a believer, you're not a believer, right? So the, the true evidence of our faith is good works, is what James is basically saying. You Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works because my works is the evidence of my faith. Do the work is the works, the mechanism by which we are saved is what you do. How perfect you try and be the mechanism that saves you. No, you're saved by faith. But the outward expression of that faith is changing works that look more and more like Yeshua every day and where we fall short. He picks us up. All right. And let me just read here Acts uh, 1630 for you guys as I uh, before I just move on. He said this. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right. And it says, and believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and his family. Right. So this belief is there. They get baptized. What does baptism mean? Automatically, when we talk about baptism, we're talking about repentance. Peter said, rise, repent and be baptized. So when you get baptized, you repent. That means that their repentance is that means turning away from bad works towards good works is a part of of baptism and part of coming to Christ. So if that doesn't work, you never came. If if you don't have changing works, you never came to Christ. You only had a profession that was not real. All right. Cool, guys. So I hope that helps. I will. I hope that makes you make sense to you. Right. I'm going to go on to the next question. Uh, conflict resolution according to Matthew 18. Also an anonymous, someone who preferred to remain anonymous. How do we deal with others? Uh, concerning Matthew 18. How do I deal with when there is conflict? Please explain Matthew 18 regarding this. Okay, so I love this, what Yeshua said regarding how do we deal with conflict? Because it's so it's such a step-by-step, three-step process. And I really wish more people simply applied this because it would it would it would avoid so much disunity uh, that we have in the body. All right, so let's read it. If your brother sins against you, okay, someone hurts you, someone says something, someone does something, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Ooh, this is a hard one, guys. 
This is a hard one, isn't it, right? What do we want to do? What does our flesh want to do? We want to go run to everyone, go run to our church, go run to Facebook, make a status. Guys, look at what this guy did to me. He spoke behind my back. He backstabbed me. He did this and that, whatever. You can have true like things that this guy's really done against you, right? But Yeshua, Jesus says, if he sins, you go to him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. End of story. Hallelujah. Praise God. Restoration. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you, preferably elders, I would say. Someone, people who are mature in faith, people who, who, who you can trust, maybe even someone that that person can trust. If that's possible, there's someone that you trust and they trust, and it's a neutral party that can come and really sit in the middle here and try and help you guys bring restoration. That every charge, it says, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so these people are actually now listening to both sides and weighing evidence and, and having a talk with everyone, these witnesses, to see if this can be resolved. But he says then, in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. All right, guys, so it's a step-by-step -step process. You go to that person alone. It doesn't work. You bring a... A, a witness, two, two witnesses with you, one to two witnesses, excuse me, two to three witnesses with you. And then you speak it out, see if you can, if it doesn't work, then you go to the fellowship, which you are a part of. And if the fellowship speaks to them and they still don't want to uh, bring about restoration, then they will be put out. But see what this does is it, there, it involves more and more people slowly. And it also means that if you are in the wrong, you the one who are saying you're my brother has sinned against me, then that means that these witnesses or this church can even speak to you and say, well, you've also done this and that wrong. Because see, sometimes a lot of times people don't want to go through this process because they are guilty themselves in another way and they don't want to face that accountability. So instead, they take things into their own hands. They just go public from day one from as the first step. But that is immature. And once you have done that, you have sinned, you have gossiped, and you have not followed the correct protocol. So then the people who hear you should not be taking your, your accusation seriously, even if they are real, because you haven't followed protocol. The only thing that I would say that is in this that would be an, an exception is if there is abuse, if there is, uh, if you're, if someone is in danger, physical danger, no, we're not going to go to that person alone and speak to them. If, if that person is in a physical danger to you, you will immediately involve whoever is needed to bring restoration or accountability to this person if they have wronged you, right? Including ju the justice system if that's necessary. All right. All right, guys. Second question regarding grief for a loved one. How do we deal with the grief of a loved one? The scriptures say to let the dead bury the dead. Can you explain these scriptures? All right. So this scripture where Yeshua is speaking is a topic where he is speaking to a, 
a a man who's who's he's saying come and follow me and he says but my father i want to go bury my father and he says let the dead bury the dead so that's the context right and we see the same thing with aaron for example when aaron's sons die in the wilderness because they offer strange fire to the lord aaron has to proceed to do his priestly duties even in the even though his sons just died he could not stop and really mourn for them this is just a picture of how when we have the kingdom of god um in front of us and a purpose laid out in front of us even though we have a situation now where there is say a, a someone who is close to us who has passed away that should not keep us from our kingdom purpose being being um effective in god's kingdom in other words you know we can easily fall into a place where i mean guys we know we all know that when someone dies close to us that is one of the most terrible heart-wrenching things that can happen to any individual all right and so when that happens it's easy for us to get into a cycle of depression anxiety fear stress and become paralyzed for god's kingdom and this was part of what Yeshua was addressing is let the dead bury the dead your father he has passed away there are people alive right now who who needs to be reached if someone is dead they are dead and there is nothing left to do for them they that that is that is that right but there are people who are breathing who are alive today who needs to be reached with the gospel and that's what Yeshua was all about is reaching those who are breathing living that's what his ministry was and that's what the disciples did the great commission was to reach the nations with the gospel so that they can escape death not for them to be preoc- so preoccupied with death that they get disillusioned and forget about what the mission is and that is to save people from eternal death all right so uh, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 4 says there's a time to weep there's a time to laugh a time to mourn a time to dance Yeshua is not saying that we are not allowed to weep we're not allowed he's not saying we're not allowed to mourn this is in context of when we are faced with God has called me to be somewhere now like Yeshua was saying you follow me today now come we have a mission on our hands to do if God is in that moment calling you to be somewhere, do something, that is more important than even burying someone. That is what is being communicated. Okay, so um, Yeshua wants us to mourn. If we have someone we have to mourn over, he even tells us to mourn with those who are mourning. So mourning is a natural thing that he he allows us and believers are allowed to have, but we have hope in the resurrection. So we don't mourn like the world mourns. Okay. Okay, another follow-up question. How to deal with the death, with death, and if a loved one was not a believer? What happens to them? There's been lots of conflicting information. What does the Bible say? Okay, so this is i'll be honest guys this is a hard one for me to answer just because of how how it's like wow you know like this is such a i don't even know like that situation right if you're not sure about this loved one 
it's so terrible, right? But what I'll say is this, is that when I personally would never try and make the judgment over someone's life of where they are going. And I think that that's restricted from us to do. We're not allowed to really do that because who say who what is there to say that if this person was like the thief on the cross who on his deathbed if you will in his last moments when there was probably no one else really around to even see or hear he in his heart of hearts cried out in faith to the messiah and he was saved so how can I say this or that person is going this or that place? We will find out at the day of judgment where we will figure out whether we have atonement or not based off whether we did put faith in him or not. So um, this person asked for scripture and I'll just read for us here. Hebrews um, tw- 9.27. That's a, I'm going to pull that up for you. And it says... And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear for a second time, not to do of sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. All right. So there we will die. There will be the judgment who I'm not the judge of. You're not the judge of. None of us are. There is a judge, the judge, who will make those judgments. And he will judge righteously. And it says that it he says he will save those who are waiting for him, who are waiting for Christ. Those are the ones who will be saved, those who have put faith in him. Right. So that's what I will say on that. Um, and I hope that blesses you guys. And I will hope also that brings some form of, of peace and that, you know, let's let's let the father be the judge because he's a righteous judge. All right, I'm just having a look at the chat here. I'm uh, just checking you guys. If you guys have any questions, by the way, in the chat, you, you just send them in. I'd love to hear uh, anything you have to offer in terms of questions. Heather says, I've seen some people recently that start uncontrollably laughing, saying they feel the Holy Spirit or the glory of the Lord. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this and if there's anything in this area to be cautious of. Yeah, I feel red flags immediately and I'm not sure if that's just my flesh getting in the way or not. Right, Heather? So, you know, I think that that's fair to have that concern. Um. You know, I it's really difficult for me to make this judgment without seeing the situation, without seeing what is manifesting here, what is happening. What is this situation? Is this a situation where, you know, I have seen uh, situations where uh, a church comes together, the pastor gets up, starts laughing uncontrollably. Next Sunday, pastor gets up, laughs uncontrollably. Next Sunday, pastor gets up, laughs uncontrollably. And that's what the service is. Okay, when that happens, we have to ask, okay, you know, hey, there, there is joy in the Lord. There is, there are, it is good. There's nothing wrong with laughing, okay? I can laugh, you can laugh. I can laugh a long time. There's nothing even wrong with that in of itself. It's not a sin, but... 
when if we are laughing and there is no order in a service in other words what we have is a the the preaching of the word of god is non-existent we do not have um, 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 prayer going forward we do not have spiritual gifts being exercised we do not have uh, anything really except laughing much going on then that church service is being compromised that service is not orderly anymore so I'm less concerned about you know again you know it's hard I, I can't judge because I don't I haven't seen what you're talking about but is it is it a sin to laugh in a church no it's not a sin to laugh in church but is it getting in the way of what the Lord wants to do and is it is it a move of the spirit if not if the word of God isn't being preached and people are laughing instead? You know, I don't know. I think that the father is a, a God of order. We see, for example, Paul talking about uh, even speaking in tongues, right? Which is something that's that's probably in a similar way, right? Something that if we just speak in a tongue, right, and then there's no interpretation that doesn't bring edification to the church. In other words, that is not orderly, Paul writes, and that person should not speak in tongues loudly if there's no interpreter. So if people are all laughing, it's the same idea. There is no edification that is happening in a church if there's just laughing, but no edification. So that's how I would answer it. I think that's a safe way of answering it without... Uh, making hard, fast rules because we can get dogmatic about these things. But if we are getting in a place where order is lost, and that—that uh, that is, I think, the really the line that we can start drawing here. All right. Uh, Brand asks, "How do I receive the gift of tongues? Just simply ask the Father." All right, Brand. I mean, good question. You know, Brand is in the live chat asking that, and and I think that that's what I did, right? I I did not know anything about the gift. I haven't I did not see the gift around me being exercised. I wasn't in the, a church that did that. I grew up Dutch Reformed, so right. Um but I read it in my Bible. That's the only reference I really had. And when I had that reference, I was like, Lord, I don't really know what this is, but except for what it says and but Lord and but but I had this this hunger in my heart, man, like, just like, wow, I, I want to do this. I don't know what it is, but it's, and in one night I was just praying, you know, in my secret place with the Lord. And, and I just had the father with his still small voice speak to me and just say, you have it, open your mouth and speak. And I just had these, this, uh, I, I don't know, but just this, 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 this welling up of words that was not a language that I knew. And I started speaking. And I remember it was the most amazing thing because I spoke for like an hour in this straight. It was so edifying. I never experienced that before. My my spirit felt built up. And, you know, I, I'll be honest. I was in a way kind of like, wow, what just happened to me? I remember I texted my friend. I was like, I don't know what just happened to me. Is this like, what is this? Right. And then he said, oh, you spoke in tongues. Look here, here, here and here. And, and I talked to him about it. I'm like, yeah, I think this has happened to me. And I remember a couple of months later, you know, because I was still kind of like, because you hear then all these other people come right from outside and they're like speaking in tongues is demonic. And, you, you know, you hear all of these these things that people have said. 
and and it, it caused even a bit of doubt in me, I remember. And then one day I was confronting uh, a demon. And even this is on our YouTube channel uh, where we cast out demons. And and as I'm casting out these demons, there were like 20 people in that church, man. We were baptizing people and like 20 people, at least one after another, every one of them was manifesting demons because of witchcraft. And man, like I, my energy was like, depleted halfway through my voice was gone my i didn't even know what to say anymore after a few of the these demons were cast out and all i could do is just speak in tongues that's all i had left literally because i my mind was so unfruitful at that point and in just speaking in tongues i saw barriers broken people delivered because the demons still trembled even at that they understood what i was saying you could see that the response was they were being terrified, right? And at that point, look, you don't have to believe me, but at that point, I had this, wow, this, this spiritual gift is deeper than I ever thought. What just happened there, right? What just happened? And so uh, that's just a little bit of my journey with that. So yes, you can ask the Father and be hungry for it. And I will say that for people who are struggling, the biggest barrier that I've noticed is that is bad theology, uh, um, believing things about it that aren't true, having expectations about it. God is usually not going to open your mouth and make you do something. You need to, like any spiritual gift, get out of your way, open your mouth and speak if that is what he is putting on you, if that is the desire he is putting on you. Just like if I want to pray for someone to get healed, I go to them and pray for their healing. If I want to prophesy, I open my mouth and prophesy. Yes, the Spirit moves us, but we do it because it is we do it in communion with Him and the action is on our play to do. We need to take that first step and then the Spirit comes and when we surrender our mouth, we surrender our heart, we surrender our whatever it is we need to surrender, our uh, ideas of what it's supposed to look like or feel like or whatever, then the spirit can move through us, but it need he requires surrender. All right, guys. Hope that blessed you, Brand. Hope that helps you out. Um, okay, I'm gonna go on. Have a look at uh, the next question here. All right, our own words on the Sabbath. All right. So this was a good question regarding the Sabbath. Uh, I think that. Um, we have to really think about when we talk about the Sabbath in terms of keeping it and whether we are keeping it in the heart of the Father. That is the key here. Because as you all know, right, the Sabbath is something that man have made millions of laws about around how it should look and should not look. I like to stick to the simple biblical instructions regarding it. So now this question is regarding what it seems the Bible teaches and whether how it should look for us. Hi, and thank you so much for this Q&A. I have been concerned for some time about keeping the Sabbath in the sense of not speaking our own words or doing our own interests. When a group gathers for Sabbath, it seems so difficult to keep the conversation and thoughts only about Yah and his purposes, will, etc., during the time in between the service and study later. Many times, thoughts expressed and words go on to other things, personal things, things that 
that one would talk about any other time and not on the Sabbath. Am I seeing this wrong? Am I being too strict about this? Um, uh, what about if we have conversations about trivial things or emphasis is on what is bad in the world, people's jobs, etc.? I feel like we would be breaking focus and grieving the Father. My understanding of the Sabbath, this is what she is being said, should be for rejoicing, worshiping, resting in Him, <clears throat> ministering in prayer and encouragement. <coughs> Excuse me. Ministering in prayer and encouragement, laying down heavy burdens or problems, though we pray about these things if requested. Okay. Um, and then she goes on and says, I gracefully step out of conversations if they deviate. Um, but I think this is hard, she says, because it's only when we see people on the Sabbath. We only see people on the Sabbath. And so it's hard to not talk about things that are strictly about God. All right. So I'm, I'm just kind of shortening this a bit. It's such a good question. And I think that this all comes from Isaiah 58, 13, right? Because in Isaiah, it he talks about not going your own way. And I'm just going to pull it up for us here because... Because it'll bring some clarity for you guys, I think. Okay, he says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take the line of the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, hey guys, I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know, I have for a while, at a time in my life, I have believed that I am not allowed to do pleasure. I am not allowed to do anything of my, of my own. I'm not allowed to talk idly about anything that is not about God or worship or whatever. But then I read this chapter when I, and I saw the context. The context is so important, right? So we, when we go to verse 3, the beginning of this, and we read, what is this really all about? What is this Isaiah 58 about? We recognize that he is speaking not just about, well, he's not speaking about the weekly Sabbath, but instead he's speaking about a certain Sabbath. And he talks about how people are seeking him, right? As if they were a nation that did righteousness, right? And they fast. Why have we fasted? But you see it not, they say. We have humbled ourselves, but yet you take no knowledge of it, right? And then he talks about in your fast, you seek your own pleasure. The day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. What is the day of the fast? What is this day we're supposed to humble ourselves? What is this day we're supposed to do all of these things? Because he goes on and says, is this not the fast that I've chosen to go and rather loose the bonds of wickedness and all of these things, right? He is talking about the day of atonement. Because remember, Luke 4, Yeshua stands up and speaks about this is the year of the year of the Lord, right? He's speaking about the Jubilee. And we know that the Jubilee started at the day of atonement as well, where he was going to loose the bonds of wickedness, set the captives free. And the day of atonement is where we humble ourselves. We fast. That's why he talks about fasting. And the day of atonement is a high Sabbath. Okay, so this chapter is about the high Sabbath of the day of atonement, where on the day of atonement, 
we are supposed to not do any pleasure. He actually says that you should be afflicting your soul is what the day of atonement commandment is. This is the one day of the year that God actually says, afflict your soul. Don't do pleasure, right? Honor it. Don't do your own ways. Don't talk idly. So he is speaking about the high Sabbath of the day of atonement in Isaiah 58. And so it wouldn't be correct to take this and apply it to every Sabbath, because in that case, we would have to fast as well. We would have to do all of these other things in this chapter. But no, he's speaking about a certain day. And so to answer your question, you know, are we allowed to speak about anything except God and Bible on Sabbath? So I think that this is a situation about balance. I think that God wants us definitely to focus on him, to focus on prayer and fellowship and worship and speaking about him and his ways and 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 praying for one another, all this stuff, right? Amen to that. I think that should be focus. However, does this mean that on the Sabbath, I'm not allowed to do anything pleasurable? Does it mean I'm not allowed to, to go out and um, speak to someone about anything else that's not related to God? We are allowed to do things that are that are that ha- that are pleasurable to us. Where if you like fishing, and that's the way that you can delight in the Lord and spend time with Him and speak to Him, and that's pleasure to you, that's all right. We're just not allowed to labor on this day, right? And if uh, you see your your friends only on once a week on the Sabbath, and that's the only day you're going to really be able to speak to them. Yeah, it's okay to speak to them about other things too, because fellowship is about fellowshipping in the Lord, but it's also about relating with people, right? It's, you know, relating is being human. It's it's speaking to someone about interests. It's about connecting with people. And we connect with people primarily regarding our faith, but also in other areas. That's how friendships are built. Right. So it's totally fine, in my opinion, and what I think that the scriptures say to have uh, to have pleasure on this day, to to talk about other things, just because I do not see the Bible making a restriction surrounding it. So I will make no restriction surrounding it. And if we are in a situation where we are in a group of people who speak about everything but God on the Sabbath, who who, spe- who 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 are out of balance in this way, certainly, then it is fine. I think it would be good to bring up the Father into that conversation and speak about Him. And, you know, I wouldn't just step away. I would actually try and introduce Him to the conversation. So... Uh, guys, I hope that that helps you, helps answer your question. I see the, the Sabbath as a blessing, something that's supposed to be um, something we can delight in. And when it gets to the Day of Atonement, that's the one day that the Sabbath is going to look very different. Amen. Totally true. But for the weekly Sabbath, delight in the Lord, have fellowship with people, have a good time. Amen. All right. So, guys, I hope that that blessed you. Um, I see uh, a question from Marshall. Marshall, thank you so much for that super chat. I really appreciate that. Uh, He said, what should someone with diabetes do during Yom Kippur? 
Right. So when it comes to situations where people have a health issue, you know, the same goes, I guess, for just the day of atonement, right? We just talked about fasting and some people absolutely cannot fast because of whatever reason, you know, health reasons, maybe, you know, your health doesn't allow that with you. And if that's really something that you feel convicted about that you cannot do because of your health, or if there's something, if any of the other feasts uh, that is um, restricting you, then I believe that the Father has grace and he has mercy on us. Uh, I, I really think that that's fine. You know, it is not a, uh, if, if, if there's something that you can fast, that is not food. If there is something else you can do instead, I think that would be great, right? If there is a, something that is holding a, a hold on you in your life, like social media or, or uh, uh, your phone, because we're so much, we're enslaved. We're enslaved to this thing, brothers and sisters, these days. You know, whatever it is, if, and by the way, I think this goes for everyone. If there is something that you need to fast, then fast that, right? So if you're a diabetic, if you've got diabetes and that's that's you, I would I would recommend that. Uh, I think that the Father has mercy and grace, and I would pray into the Lord for um, for healing. I would pray into the Lord for freedom from that, for one day to be able to keep the Day of Atonement with everyone in the way of fasting too. I would definitely consider praying into that. Um, I, I have seen amazing things, brothers and sisters, and I never take that and say that's too far, too hard for the Lord. Amen, amen. All right. All right, guys. Thank you so much uh, for joining me in the chat today and the live stream. I really hope that this has blessed you guys. Um, I'm going to do one more here um, before we end the chat or in the stream. So this one is regarding graven images, right? And I think this is a huge one, right? I've, I've had, I've, in my emails, I have had this question come up so many times. Okay. And this issue of, well, what is a graven image? Is it a cross? Is it a, and what should we not have in our house? Hi, I've been trying to understand what is considered a graven image. I feel uncomfortable seeing actors portraying Jesus as well as false images of him as well. Does this fall in line when God said that we are not to have any graven images? Also, is the cross a violation? The Israelites used a golden calf to honor God, but it was still against his law. Many people say that the cross is to honor Christ, but is it still wrong? Thank you. Guys, I'm going to tell you with this one, I'm going to get in trouble. Am I not? No matter what I say, I'm going to get in trouble with this with someone out there. Um, but I'm going to share with you guys because I believe that the word is clear on this. Right. I think that let, let me let's let me, let me pull up the word. Right. Let's just read it. Right. Exodus 20 uh, speaks about this. There's a few places in the word where God commands regarding graven images. Right. And every single time he does, he speaks in context of something we need to recognize. And it is regarding worshiping other gods. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in the heaven above and the earth beneath or in the, that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them 
or serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Okay, so we see that. Let, let's look at another, just, just one more, just to drive this home. Um, Leviticus 26, verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to, and I am the Lord your God. So we see continuously this talk of bowing down to this image, making this image to bow down to it, to make idols for yourself. Right, And just like we read in Exodus 23, just before this, you shall have no other gods before me. That is really the context of all of this. So clearly we can establish that this all is about idol worship, worshiping other gods. That's why God says, I'm a jealous God. So when we come to some of the issues now that were brought up in this question, really good question, by the way, you know, is the cross a violation is one of the was one of the questions. And, and my answer will be, well, it depends. Does it fall into what the scriptures tell us not to do? Are we bowing down to it? Is it has it become an idol to us? Have we um, uh, have we con are we wor bringing worship to this thing? <clears throat> now, some people do. Some people have erected massive crosses with a, a a a statue of Jesus on it and they have bowed down they have kissed his feet they have prayed to the statue or through the statue to God and that I will say is not right because we are doing everything that the scriptures are telling us not to do we are seeing this graven image as an idol in that case but now, is the cross of as a symbol in of itself evil? No, it is a symbol of the crucifixion. Now, you can have a preference to like it or not like it. You have the freedom in that. But is it evil? Am I going to condemn someone who has a necklace and that's a way that they like to show their faith? They're not bowing down to it. They haven't erected it as an image to, to worship God through and... You know, so that's different. That's a different situation. So it depends. Are we worshiping God through this thing? Because like it was mentioned in the question, the golden calf, the golden calf's problem was that it was an erection of a statue that was a representation of Yahweh. Aaron got up there and said, look, guys, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. So this is Yahweh, basically, he was saying. And he said, this is the Lord. He said, that this is Yahweh. So he was creating this, this statue as the way that they can worship, bow down to, worship God through, etc. And that falls into the same issue here. That was wrong because he does not want us to worship him through anything. He wants us to be, be come to him through Yeshua, that we pray to Yeshua. And that's the way to the heart of the Father. That is it. No other thing is going to do that for us. And that's the way of the pagans. So we don't do it that way. So uh, the, the question, lastly, also considered actors, people who, who play in movies, right? Who, who play as Jesus in a biblical film. Is that wrong? Is that the same? Is that a graven image, right? Now, 
what is happening in a film is we have someone who are representing, who are who are coming forward and telling a story. They're trying to show to spread the gospel. Typically, they're trying to tell the story of the gospel. And I don't think that this falls into idol worship because we're not bowing down before them. Hopefully you're not doing that because if you are, okay, that's wrong. (laughs) I mean, I guess arguably some people do worship actors. So in that case, if that's happening, that's wrong. But if we're just talking about someone who is, who is, who is playing in a film to communicate the gospel message, we're not worshiping them. They're not an idol. We are worshiping God through why we're not bowing down to them or any of that. They are now playing Jesus, perhaps. And if they represent him wrongly, that would be wrong too, right? If they play him in a way that is that is not in line with the scriptures, that is wrong. But I want to submit to you something. Are we not all, like, are we not all supposed to be playing the role of Christ? Are we not as hands and feet on the earth? Are we not supposed to be this, this, when people look at us, they see him. And this is, this is simply what I'm saying is we are a witness of him. And this is radically different from being a, a graven image that is being worshiped. You see, an actor is not a graven image being worshiped. Hopefully they are simply a messenger that communicates the gospel. So I don't see anything wrong with movies. uh, If they are good, if they are giving the gospel message clearly and in line with our scripture says, I think that it has actually brought people to him. I think it has blessed people. Are they perfect? No, they're not perfect. And I'm not perfect either. So if I want to condemn an actor, I need to also look at my own life, right? I have to be like, have I acted out my Christian life perfectly at all times? No, I haven't. So there's that. So, but that's what I would say on that. I, I, I think that there is a lot to speak about regarding actors, but I don't think regarding the issue of graven images as in Exodus chapter 20 or Leviticus 26 is connected to actors playing in movies. All right, guys, uh, I hope that this has blessed you guys. And um, I see Linda says, wow, this brings clarity on Isaiah scripture and heart of the Sabbath. Thank you so very much. Uh, Saul to Paul said, Saul to Paul said, what the son has set free is free indeed. Amen. Amen. All right. And you know what? I'm just going to end this off, guys, with just a prayer for all of you who's joined me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Father, I just pray you would bless and keep everyone. Shine your face upon them. Lift up your countenance upon them. Give them your shalom. Give them your mercy. And Father, I pray for healing over everyone right now. Lord, thank you for freedom from pain. Lord, I thank you for freedom from sickness. Thank you for freedom from diabetes. Amen. Hallelujah, God. I thank you, Lord, for healing diabetes in the chat today, Lord. I pray, Lord, you would come, Lord, and cleanse their blood, Lord. Let their body, the organs and everything function perfectly well. I thank you for complete restoration in the name of Yeshua, Father. Amen. And Lord, I pray for everyone suffering. Lord, we lift up our burdens to you. In the name of Yeshua, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for 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 freedom. I thank you, Lord, for carrying our burdens. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love and a sound mind. Hallelujah, guys. 
If this has blessed you, please consider partnering with us. It allows me to continue to do this every week. Remember, every Thursday at night at 7 p.m. Eastern time, you'll find me here. I thank you. Many, many blessings and shalom.